Okay, I'm here today with Arnie Olson. Arnie, for Energy and Environmental better known as E3, uh, where he is a senior partner, and um, he is heavily involved in a number of um, modeling efforts for E3 that involve uh, modeling the evolution of various regional electric grids as part of a green transition or a decarbonization process, and that's the part of his work that we want to talk about today. Arnie has a, a master's degree in international energy management and policy from University of Pennsylvania and Institut Francais de Petrole, as well as uh, undergraduate degrees in statistics and mathematical sciences, sciences from University of Washington. Arnie, thanks for sitting down to talk to us today. No, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, David. So one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is that the work that you do with E3 um, is goes directly to the kind of trade-off issues that we're focusing on in, uh, in the Energy Trade website. Um, and it's also work that, you know, people might not know as much about or not as many people know about it as know about some of the other high-profile work work that's been done of this kind by people like Mark Jacobson or NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. But I, 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 and so I, I thought it was worth focusing on the stuff that you do because I think it really informs this, uh, this question of, of value judgments and trade-offs associated with the green transition. So I'd like to start, before we get into the conclusions of the, the kind of work you've done, I'd like you to, if we could start just by having you describe in a brief way uh, the, way, the, the tools you use to, to, to undertake these modeling exercises. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, there are, I would say, three or four or five different tools um, that we use at various times and in various combinations. Um, I guess the way that I prefer to do it, if I have unlimited uh, time and resources, um, is to start with the broadest view, which is at, at the economy-wide level. I think it's difficult to understand exactly where the electric grid needs to go if you're looking at the electric grid in isolation. And I think that you can sometimes come to the wrong conclusions if you just view one sector of the economy in isolation from all of the others. So we have a model called Pathways that we use to do long-run decarbonization studies of the entire economy, looking at carbon budgets across all of the sectors and as well as all of the non-energy uh, greenhouse gases. And we have a model called Resolve, uh, which uh, does optimal capacity expansion. It's designed to look at uh, the specific characteristics of wind and solar and how they line up with loads and how they line up with each other, with and without various types of energy storage, battery storage, pumped hydro, compressed air, and looking at the diversity of all of those different resources, um, as well as with some high-level estimates of the needed transmission. Um, so that allows us to get a 30-year kind of forward look at what the uh, capital additions uh, you might need to make to the electric grid. Um, then there's another tool called Recap, which really looks at the capacity question. Uh, so Resolve has a, a series of... Um, uh, sample days, I'll put it, where that we use to, do, to represent the grid over many years. Recap is more of a loss of load type of model uh, where we look at thousands of years of simulated weather conditions to make sure that we can continue to serve load 
with acceptable reliability, even under extreme weather. You published on your website a, a large a number of studies that use various combinations of these tools, and I want to zero in on the set of studies uh, that you did for the Northwest sec power sector and then the California studies, which involved the broader pathways model. Um, mm-hmm. Start with the Northwest um, sector. Can you describe a little bit about what you were asked to do there and what your primary conclusions uh, were as a result of that work? Sure. Yeah, there are a couple of studies that we've done for the Northwest um, about, let's see, I guess it was in 2017, um, we were asked by a group of public power utilities in the Northwest uh, that are also generation owners. Um, they wanted to understand how their resources, largely hydro resources, might fit in to a long-term decarbonized future. So the notion was, you know, there, there was lots of interest in legislation in Washington at the time uh, to advance this clean energy transition. Uh, so they wanted to understand what that would look like, uh, what types of policies that one might enact to bring that about and whether there are any differences among them um, and then what the role of their existing hydro assets might be. So from that study largely involved a result. It was an electric sector only study. So we looked at the evolution of the Northwest grid between today and 2050 at various different levels of renewable penetration. And we also ran some cases that were constrained on carbon emissions So just to understand, as you reduce carbon by 60%, 80%, 90% below 1990 levels, uh, how the grid changes. Um, And I would say the primary conclusion from that study, well, there's a couple of them. One is that the good news is that you can can do it. We we, we can achieve 80% reductions or more below 1990 levels uh, in something like the 2050 timeframe the resources are available to help make the transition. Um, I think we know how to operate the grid, or we've shown how to operate the grid to keep it reliable along those with, with that level of renewables. Um, some of the bigger issues are around uh, transmission, really, and just the practicality of the build. But the resources are there if we can access them. Um, but we did learn that a, a, a plan that focuses only on renewables is, is potentially suboptimal compared to a one that has a broader focus. Uh, and that we, so we found that our, just an RPS uh, by itself uh, has higher costs. It misses things like uh, replacing coal with natural gas, which is a very low cost way to reduce carbon by between 40 and 60% um, while maintaining type of reliable capacity that you need to ensure that you can serve load reliably. So we learned that a carbon price or a carbon cap is a more efficient way to reduce carbon on the Northwest grid than a single single issue policy like an RPS. We also learned that if you were to do a prohibition on new natural gas generation, then that would increase the cost of the electric grid while hardly doing anything to reduce carbon. So that there was a notion out there that um, if we just stop building new gas plants and don't replace the ones that we have today when they come to the end of their useful lives, that will force us to transition away from gas. We found that was a very ineffective 
policy mechanism. It raises costs, but by itself doesn't really do anything uh, to reduce carbon emissions. Um, the, the, the issue that we didn't study uh, in detail in that effort was resource adequacy and long-run reliability. We've kind of left that as a follow-up, but there was a lot of interest in, in that follow-up. And so uh, this just this last year, the, the public power group that we worked with before called the Public Generating Pool was, was joined by three of the large investor-owned utilities in the region, Puget Sound Energy, Avista, and Northwestern in Montana to do a detailed uh, study of resource adequacy. And there we found that the region is actually uh, very in very tight load resource balance today, uh, needs new capacity over the next 10 years, particularly as coal resources are, are retiring. Uh, and even though wind and solar and potentially storage are projected to be added, uh, those won't be enough by themselves to, to fill the, the, the hole that's left by the retiring coal with respect to resource adequacy. And then the question is, if you do build gas today, uh, does that gas become stranded as you look at the long-run transition? Uh, and we found that it, we, we think it doesn't because even in 2050, unless there's a, a lot of advancement in technologies, we think we still need some natural gas uh, and potentially as much as 20 or 25 gigawatts of natural gas in the Northwest, so twice as much as, as they have on this in the system today. Uh, so we think it's possible to have both a deeply decarbonized grid uh, and reliable electric service, but to get there, you need to make sure that there's 20 to 25 gigawatts of firm capacity, which today looks like that needs to be natural gas. Yeah, that, that was. This is a 2019 study. Is that correct? Yes. So that struck me. You know that both the conclusion uh, regarding firm low carbon resources in both studies uh, was I found really interesting, and you're quite, and you have kind of a rejoinder to the concern that this will create sort of carbon lock-in, and that is that uh, because of the prevalence of zero marginal cost resources like wind and solar on the system, that natural gas will only get used uh, when in, during emergencies, essentially, uh, during reliability events. Yeah, definitely, and that's that's the way the natural gas has always operated. It's never been a baseload resource. Uh, it's a resource that the, the owners are typically happy to turn off if there are lower cost sources of energy available. Uh, and so in a world where we're expecting there to be wind and solar available in large quantities during most hours, uh, you know, we, we would just expect the gas to run less and less and less over time. Um, but when we need the capacity, we still need the capacity. So it's really, to me, it's a, it's a nice gradual transition where we're just using the gas plants less and less, but we keep them around for emergencies. And, uh, and when we are in one of those situations, I guarantee we'll be happy to have them. And they get paid for either by high market prices for energy or by some sort of capacity uh, or combination of thereof capacity payments? Yeah, so that becomes the question is is what what um, compensation mechanism or structure is needed to maintain these resources that are only used, you know, a few hours of the year. And um, it's not a new problem. Uh, natural gas has been used for peaking for decades, and especially in the in the hot 
you know, southern regions. Um, so it just needs to be expected that these are, you know, very infrequently used resources. Uh, you know, it's five or ten percent capacity factor throughout the year. Um, in the Northwest, it's still dominated by vertically integrated utilities. Uh, so it's not difficult at all to imagine that these resources are paid for through, uh, you know, uh, either a long-term PPA or a utility-owned asset that's in their rate base, and it's it, that's just part of the least cost portfolio for serving load reliably while um, while reducing carbon emissions. Um, in other, I think the same physical traits are true in other regions as well, like the Northeast, you know, where you have markets. And in California, where you have a market, so there uh, the the payment or the mechanism for paying the capacity to stay around is a little bit different. But in all markets, as you know, except for ERCOT, uh, there is some type of capacity payment system. Uh, and so, you know, what I, I guess what we would expect is that as those resources are used less, there would be fewer other revenues to offset just the cost of keeping the capacity around. So you might see an upward trend in capacity prices as a result. Um, you know, the natural gas pipeline capacity it, it still has to be reserved on a firm basis. And if you're using that less, then you're getting less economic benefit from that as well. So that's another way that uh, the you know, unit cost of keeping this capacity around would tend to go up. But it's not a large cost when you look at it from the perspective of the entire electricity portfolio. Uh, Given what's happened with the cost of wind and solar and batteries, that we, we can get a lot farther without looking to some of those more exotic and, you know, potentially troublesome technologies um, than, than we used to think. So 80% reduction below 1990 levels, maybe even 90% reduction below 1990 levels can, can be achieved at an affordable cost with wind and solar and batteries as the new resources, and again, uh, backed up with just enough natural gas to serve low during all of the other hours. Um, if you want to go beyond that, if you want to go all the way to zero carbon, that's when we find that, you know, obviously, if you're still burning natural gas, you're not at zero carbon. So, so how do you get those last few percent? Um, the biogas or synthetic gas, you know, zero carbon or carbon neutral gas, it fits really well with that type of a system. Uh, it might be very expensive fuel, and we typically model it at 30 or $40 per MMBTU. Uh, but if you're not burning very much of it, you almost don't care how much it costs. It also is a drop in fuel, so it reuses exactly the, ex the infrastructure that you build for the transition. So we think of natural gas as being the transition fuel to keep the keep the lights on, uh, and if you can just slowly reduce the carbon intensity of that fuel, then all of the existing infrastructure gets reused or just continues to be used in exactly the same way, uh, just with a different fuel source that uh, is carbon neutral through its life cycle. So that pairs very nicely. It's a very nice transition all the way to zero, if you can imagine that that amount of biomass-based gas or synthetic gas is available in those quantities and at those prices. Um, the other technologies, nuclear and CCS, are different in the sense that they're very capital-intensive resources uh, that, 
and that tend to have, or at least nuclear, has very low operating costs. So nuclear, in a sense, is more of a direct competitor to the low-carbon energy that solar and wind provide. Um, and what we find when we model a system with a lot of nuclear in it is that it has it ends up uh, significantly reducing the solar and wind uh, build out. Um, part of the issue there is that if you really want to get rid of those last few percent of emissions, you have to get rid of all of that firm gas, right? So 20 to 25 gigawatts of firm gas capacity is what we found was needed in the Pacific Northwest. You have to replace all of that with nuclear. It's not just that a few gigawatts of nuclear, you know, are enough to solve the peak load problem. It's a lot of it. And so it's, it's, it's challenging because it's a very capital intensive solution uh, for a problem that doesn't have that much energy associated with it. So it's, it's, uh, it ends up changing the portfolio significantly and adding a lot of cost to it. Uh, and CCS is similar. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of in between. It's both capital intensive and it has a lot of fuel cost. Um, so it, 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 it pairs better with the wind and solar than, than nuclear does, but, uh, but not as well as the, as the biogas does. And uh, unless you can get CCS down to zero carbon emissions, then it, doesn't, it still doesn't fit in a 100% zero carbon grid. Uh, if we run our grids all the way, our models all the way to zero, we don't pick CCS because we always assume something like 5 or 10% residual emissions uh, from those technologies. And then I guess the last one is would be the very long duration storage. And here, you know, we would need a week or more, uh, maybe even a couple of weeks worth of storage to make sure that you can serve load during the, typically it's the winter time uh, where it's cold and dark and still. And we find these conditions everywhere that we've looked at these, we found uh, those conditions in the historical record. Uh, and so it's not lithium ion, it's potentially hydrogen storage or compressed air or uh, some other for, uh, exotic form of energy storage technology, which you would then pair with wind and solar. Um, 